Things change over time. It's inevitable. Technology brings changes. Many of them improve our lives. Some of them don't. Culture brings changes. Most of them often do not improve our lives. And it's the cultural changes that pressure us to change the gospel to the perceived needs of society. Right now, there's pressure to not preach about forgiveness of sins, but rather preach about the meaning and the purpose of life, catching your dream, following your dream. There is pressure not to preach about repentance because it can be offensive to people. If you needed to repent, that might mean there might be something wrong in your life. Duh. There's pressure not to preach about pursuing holiness. Instead, preach about environmental responsibility, global warming. Instead of preaching about biblical maturity, growing up in Christ and being responsible for your actions, preach about the pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of your dream and, and prosperity. Instead of divine judgment, preach about the need for social justice. And instead of preaching so much about God or especially Jesus, preach about spirituality. Don't go so heavy on preaching about Jesus because he can be offensive. That is very real. Although the methods of preaching can change, and they should change because we should be creative. People need to be persuaded. They need time to think. And they, to accept or reject the gospel. There's nothing, nothing that says we can't change the way we preach the gospel. It's the message of the gospel that should never change. Originality is always, always helpful, whether it's in music or preaching. We lived in a city called Cordova, Argentina. It's right in the middle of Argentina, a city of about a million people. And if you take off in your car driving toward Buenos Aires, in the first hundred miles, you'll cross four rivers. The Spaniards, they settled there, and they named everything. And these guys were the most original people you've ever seen in your life. River in Spanish is Rio. The first river, they named Rio Uno. The second one, they named it Rio Dos. The third one, they named it Rio Tres. And the fourth one, they named it Rio Cuarto. So I can see this Spanish captain calling in, Joe, listen, I need you. There's four rivers here. I need you to go name them. All right, you got it, Joe? Yeah. What do you got? River Uno, River One, River Two, River Three, River Four. Good job. <laughs> that is a decoration for creativity. We need creativity in preaching and teaching the gospel. But we must defend with our lives the gospel, that it never changes. Today, we're going to look at the story of David and Goliath. I have divided it up into four parts. So next week, we'll actually see the battle. But this third part is a very, very important part. It actually has the roots of the gospel out of the New Testament, what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ, are found in the story of David and Goliath. Not only this story, but many of the stories, but very clearly in this story. For instance, look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, 
Now notice what it says. The son of David, the son of Abraham. So Jesus, who is the Messiah, who brings us the gospel, is presented as the son of David. There is definitely a connection because the story of David and Goliath has crucial, essential parts of the gospel. It has its roots in the gospel. The foundation for the gospel of bringing us forgiveness for sin and salvation from, from ourself, eternal salvation from death, is found in this story, this very familiar story to all of us, the story of David and Goliath. So let me pick the story up. David had been sent by his father, where his brothers were about 12 miles away, to the valley of Elah. There the Philistines were lined on one side on a mountain, and the Israelite army on another side on a mountain. There's a valley about a half a mile in between. And once a day for 40 days, this giant monster Goliath, and the Goliath, Goliath actually means the man in between, and he, he was a champion. You didn't get this championship unless you had killed lots and lots of enemy. He came out and he defied all the Israelites to send out a man who had the courage to fight him. And they would make a deal that if he won, they would become the slaves of the Philistines. If their man won, they would become the slaves, which was a lie. But this mockery had been going on twice a day. It would last 40 days. The Israelite army was completely terrorized. Well, Goliath mocked all the Israelite armies, their king, and he mocked their God. David had arrived on the scene, and he saw this, and it shocked him so much that he had a reaction. He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? When his older brothers saw that he was running off his mouth, how they perceived it, the older brother rebuked him immediately. When Eliab, David's older brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here, and with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. David, undeterred, leaves his brother and moves on. The main question in David's mind is, How can this guy be doing this and nobody's doing anything about it? He is in a total shock. Though David keeps making these statements, he heard there was a reward for anyone who kills that the king was willing to give his daughter in marriage. He's willing to exempt him from taxes. He's going to give him great wealth. So David's asking questions about this, mostly wondering why nobody has done anything. So David's words are reported to the king. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. These were pretty shocking words. In verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Well, let me break that down. Those are the words that are reported to the king, and the king calls David because of these words. There is at least four important elements to these words. First of all, David is stating that the God of Israel is a living God. Secondly, he states 
in these words that Israel, the nation of Israel, belongs to this living God. Thirdly, he's stating that this giant, who's almost 10 feet tall, is blaspheming their God. Fourthly, he mentions this Philistine is unworthy of any acknowledgement. He's nothing. Whoever would come out and blaspheme their God. So David's words catch the attention of the king. Now, we can't help but wonder why Saul has been so inactive. It's his job as the king to, to actually rid Israel of the Philistine army. That's why he had been asked to be the king. He hasn't done that. David is going to present to Saul his view. You might call it David's gospel, but he's going to present how he sees things through the eyes of God. God has anointed him with his spirit, and David has a totally different view than the entire army and Saul of this situation. The words I just read to you seem outrageous. They will seem outrageous to Saul. They seem outrageous to anyone that hears them. But actually, the words of the gospel seem outrageous to people the first time they hear it, or the second time, or the third time. Here is the message of David. I'm going to take some time. It breaks down into two parts. The first message that David presents to Saul is, let no human heart fail because of this giant. Don't let anybody have a heart attack because of this guy. That's the number one thing. The second thing is, fear not, I will fight him. That's David's gospel. That's his message. So let's take the first one. Let no one lose heart because of this giant. Now, you have to remember the giant's almost 10 feet tall. He's been fighting for years and years. He has all the combat regalia. He is fitted for war. It's not even fair. It's two to one. Maybe like three to one. But uh, he has all this combat material. David's a 17-year-old kid, has no armor, has a slingshot. It seems preposterous that David is proposing to fight him, but he is. Verse 32, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. It's an imperative. David takes charge of the meeting right here. He's with the king, but clearly David speaks an imperative to the king. Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. This would seem like nonsense to Saul. Goliath embodies terror to even look at his appearance. And this is what is happening to the army. They first heard his words, they were terrorized. Now just his appearance terrorizes them. They're thinking things like, run for your life, find a hiding place. We don't stand a chance. But David says, let no man lose heart. But think about what the, what the gospel proposes that comes from Jesus. Look at your greatest enemy. Maybe your greatest enemy is death, your own death. Or maybe it's your sin, your sin, that you can't escape. The bondage and the terrible consequences, the devil. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. Don't lose heart because of death. Don't lose heart because of your sin. Don't lose heart because of the devil. Don't lose heart because of this world. When Jesus was invited over to the house of a notorious sinner, he wrote the fourth gospel. His name was Matthew. This guy was a cheater, a scammer. He, was the, he worked for the IRS. In the, uh, 
he was the IRS of that time, all right? Not trying to make any connection there, just, just saying. In fact, uh, when he got saved, he gave four times back the money that he stole from people. Jesus was at his house, and he says that he came to save people like Matthew. On another occasion, he was with another notorious tax collector. His name was Zacchaeus. And this is what he said, Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's the gospel. Fear not. So David says to the king, fear not. Don't let anybody lose heart over this guy. (laughs) Saul looks and he just seems so preposterous. He can't believe it. And then David says, fear not. I, I will fight him. Here's a small youth, too small to be in the army, too small to leave home. And David is saying, I'll fight him. Nobody wants to fight him, even Saul, who is extraordinarily tall, extraordinarily capable. And David says, I'll fight him. To Saul, this either is preposterous, stupid, or audacious, but he doesn't even know how to react to it. But Saul's sees Goliath the way everybody else sees him. David sees Goliath through God's eyes. It's amazing what a giant looks like when you see it through God's eyes. If you're used to seeing giants through your own eyes, you'll be petrified. You'll be terrified. You'll find a place to hide. But when you see giants through God's eyes, you say things like, don't lose heart on account of this giant. I'll fight him. Another thing, David identifies himself as Saul's servant. The giant had accused him of being Saul's slaves. And David says, I am your servant, the servant of the living God. He doesn't see his role as an obligation. He sees it as something God has asked him to do. David's message to Saul is very similar to the message Moses delivered to the children of Israel when they were trapped. Remember when they came out of the Exodus, this marvelous Exodus, 450 years of enslavement in Egypt, and God delivers them. Pharaoh lets them go after 10 devastating plagues. He lets them go, and they travel out. And then he changes his mind. He activates the army. They pursue them. So the Israelites are trapped, the Egyptian army on one side, the Red Sea on the other side, and the people go berserk. This is what happens when you see a giant that seems too big. It was the same Goliath they were seeing. And Moses looked at the army, he looked at the Red Sea, he looked at God, and God gave him that same spirit of God that he gave David. And Moses said this, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Moses said the same thing. Do not be afraid, for the Lord will fight for you. This is actually the same message that the Lord gave at Christmas, that first Christmas when his son was born. He first gave it to the shepherds, delivered by angels. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior, the one who saves people from their sins, has been born to you. He is the Messiah, 
the Lord. That actually meant more to them than it does to Gentiles. They were waiting for a Messiah. All their life, from the time they were little, they were taught a Messiah will come, a Messiah will come. And the angel says, that Messiah you've been waiting for your whole life, he just was born in Bethlehem, a few miles from here. You'll find him in a stable. This message had already been delivered to Joseph by an angel. But the angel said in Matthew 121, she will give birth, the angel speaking to Joseph, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Do not be afraid. You will be saved from your enemies because God will fight for you. Well, Saul, listening to David, and it was a persuasive talk, I think, because David is convinced he doesn't have any fear of this giant. But Saul's conclusion is, you're not able. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. It's reasonable, this conclusion Saul has come to. I mean, look at him. He's been doing this for years. He's killed people for breakfast. And you're just a kid. I mean, Saul's conclusion would actually be based on the the doubts he has looking at David. Your ability to go up against him just doesn't measure up. So David goes into a persuasive talk to give him a little history of how God has enabled him when he has come up against giants in his past. This isn't the first giant he's, he's ever faced. It might be bigger, but listen to some of the giants that David has faced. And David is responding to Saul's unbelief. You doubt that I can fight him? Listen to what has happened to me in the past. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep when a lion or bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock. And these are examples. It's not one bear or one lamb. It's, these are examples of what has happened to David. He's killed wild beasts. I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. This isn't bragging here. He is in a battle of persuading the king. He's going to fight this giant. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. That's the underlining point that Saul hasn't understood. If he'd understood that, they already, he would have already fought the giant. David has delivered many a lamb from the clutches of the deadly animal here. These are more than his credentials as a skillful fighter because he gives the reason for victory is that God helped him to kill the lion and kill the bear. And this giant won't be any different. As God helped me kill the lion, as God helped me kill the bear, God will help me kill this one. Saul is beginning to feel something different. I mean, this kid doesn't look like he'd do it to me, but there's something different about this kid. David is making very clear how this battle is going to turn out because David already knows. Look at verse 37 again. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. That's the underlining statement. 
And that's the gospel of David right there. The Lord is going to rescue me. He's going to save me exactly the same way he did in all these previous circumstances. So Saul says, go and the Lord be with you. Now, I don't think that Saul captures what David's been telling him. That is the Lord who was with him with the bear and the lion and the Lord. He doesn't capture. It's more like a statement. God bless you. The Lord will be with David and the Lord will accompany him in this battle. But it's the Lord who's behind that slingshot. It's behind that stone. It's behind the courage of David. David is the first one to use in this whole conversation of David here. David uses the name Yahweh, which is the sacred name of God for the Jews. And if you look in the Hebrew, even I don't read Hebrew, but I have it on my computer and I can pull it up and you see the Yahweh in this verse. All that says is David knows Yahweh. David knows God. There's such a difference when somebody knows God and someone knows about him. You can talk about God. You can even sound very religious. But when you know God, it's very different. David knows God. And we, we know this from the past. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. From that day forward, the Spirit of God had come upon him. So Saul says, all right, the Lord be with you. Go ahead, go fight him. So we think now David's going to go out there and fight the giant. No, we have one more delay right here. We think we're getting action. We got another we got another delay. I'm calling this section Saul's way. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. So he took his armor. When David doesn't even begin to come to the statue of Saul. He dresses him a coat of armor. I mean, that has a lot of weight itself. And you can see David, he tries walking around on this stuff. It says, David fastened on his sword over the tunic tried walking around because he was not used to them. Now, this is the same stuff that Goliath has on. It would be like a little Goliath fighting a big Goliath. This would be the way Saul would have dressed if he was going to go out and fight Goliath. So they are Saul's battle armor. Saul hasn't used them, but if he had have used them, this is how he would have. Now, look at verse 39 again. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he wasn't used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. I cannot go in these. That's really powerful. I can just imagine the scene as David gets all this stuff on. Saul has people helping to get David all ready. David starts walking around with stuff. He can't hardly move. He's not going to be pressured. He says, look, I've never tried these things out. I don't feel comfortable. In, I can't use these. So he takes them off. 39 and 40. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd bag, and with his sling in hand, approached Philistine. I want to summarize 
a few things right here about David, which I think bring relevance to each of us. David demonstrates he knows his identity in God. He declares that he doesn't want to imitate Saul. You know, he's not worried about hurting Saul's feelings here. I can't do this. I can't go in these. He's aware of his identity in God. And he has an appreciation for his own gifts. Grabs his shepherd's staff, his, his sling, stones from the string. Secondly, he doesn't allow himself to be pressured to be someone else. Fathers are notorious for pressuring their sons to be like them. Husbands often pressure their wives to be the wife they want them to be, dictating how they want them to be. People in general can be very opinionated as about how they want someone else to be, their own friend. David says, I cannot go in these. It's a very freeing statement. When you understand in Christ, you refuse to allow someone else to put their stuff on you. I cannot go in these. I cannot use these. It's about understanding who you are, who God made you to be. Now, I think an armor, helmet, sword is probably a whole lot more impressive than a slingshot. So if you're, if you're out to impress someone, thanks, King, this is really great. I think we're going to have a dead David out there. But if you're not worried about impressing people and you really are in touch with God, you appreciate what God has given you, what he's used. So you, you can appreciate the slingshot, the skill. David makes a statement, I'm not comfortable in these. I will have to say it, and I'm speaking about me. Pastors, I think, over, I've met over the years, are some of the worst people in the world for wanting to imitate other people. Maybe it's that way in other fields. I don't know. But pastors are so, are so enamored, so obsessed with wanting to be that successful pastor, that successful, to have that successful church that they will imitate and put on. Somebody offers them garb, they'll put it on. Years ago, the pastor of, of First Assembly of God in Memphis, Tennessee, told this story. And I identify it. It's about pigs. And we had pigs, and I used to feed the pigs, so I know how pigs are. So this guy goes to feed the pigs, and there's a bunch of little pigs in there. So you have pigs will eat anything, all right? Slop, anything. I don't know why we love bacon so much. If you fed pigs, you wouldn't. But... <laughs> They, uh, you go to the slop pen, you know, the, where you put their stuff. We had buckets of corn, so you pour the corn in there, and slop, whatever. But say I'm pouring some corn in there, invariably, say there's about 10 little pigs in there, one little pig will reach in there and pull out one of those little kernels of corn, and he'll start racing around the pen. And he's just squealing, just squealing, and the squeal actually says, I got something nobody else has. And all the other pigs will leave the, all that corn and they'll just chase after him. And they want that little corn. He's not eating it. He has it in his teeth. And they're just chasing him all around. Well, that pastor of First Assembly said, that's preachers chasing after some preacher who gets up and says, God woke me up at three o'clock in the morning with this truth. And all the preachers will start following him. Little pigs. It's refreshing to see somebody who says, I'm not comfortable in these. I can't do that. 
David knew the secret of his power. It was God. It really wasn't even the slingshot. It really wasn't even the stones or the shepherd's staff. It was God. If we want to see families changed, your family changed, marriages changed, people freed from addictions, if we want to see people's life changed, going to be because of God, because of the power of God. David knew that giant would fall because of God. That's where his confidence came from. If we have confidence in God, we will experience his power. If we are trusting in anything else, anything we can find out there, it won't happen. The lesson from the story is that it's God. And the truth of the gospel, the power of the gospel, is that Jesus changes lives. I might be a little bitty preacher preaching a very big, big message, a powerful message. It's not the preacher. It's the message.